It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. The race to replace President Trump is gaining pace. Next week, 20 Democratic presidential hopefuls will take to the stage in the first televised debates. Their platforms embody some serious soul-searching about what it means to be a Democrat and how to win back the White House. So this week we're asking, which Democrat has the winning formula? The candidates hail from right across the union. I grew up in Hawaii and I represent Hawaii now in Congress. Being a United States senator from Vermont has been the honor of my life. And I'm proud to call myself a son of San Antonio. And they span the spectrum of democratic ideology. The first thing I would do as president was eliminate the president's tax cuts. It's time to break up these big companies. To ensure that we have a new Voting Rights Act. We need to end these regime change wars. And we need to have Medicare for all. That's just the bottom line. It's a larger and more diverse group than in any previous contest, not least in terms of age. Senator Bernie Sanders would be 79 on election, while Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, would, at just 38, be the youngest president ever. Later on in this programme, I'll be speaking to Mayor Pete, who argues his age is no obstacle. I do think that I'm uniquely able to present something that is the total opposite of the current president. And, uh, you know, Americans tend to vote for the opposite of whatever we've just had. We'll also hear from Andrew Yang, a serial entrepreneur who says he has a magic remedy to restore that elusive American dream. And over the coming months, we'll be speaking to more of the candidates vying for the Democratic nomination. But first, our US editor, John Prido, is with me to survey the runners and riders. Hello there, John. Hi, Anne. So what strikes you so far about the roster of those would-be commanders-in-chief from the Democratic Party ranks? Well, the first thing is an obvious one. There are an awful lot of them. You have Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren at the moment a little bit out in front in the polling, and then a 20 candidates dragging along behind them. And the second thing, I suppose, is a thing that isn't happening. I mean, when Donald Trump won the Republican nomination and then won the presidential election in 2016, there was a lot of talk of, well, would the Democrats find their own celebrity to put up against him? Do you remember there was all the talk about maybe Oprah will run? And actually, all the field, with the exception of Andrew Yang, who we'll get on to in a minute, and is only polling at 1% or something, you know, they are all politicians. So take us through the front runners and, and a thumbnail what they're offering. The simplified way of looking at the race, which actually I think is pretty handy, is that you have a moderate sort of centrist part of the party represented by Joe Biden and a more left-wing sort of activist part of the party who at the moment favour Elizabeth Warren. These were the people perhaps who were most keen on Bernie Sanders last time out. They seem to have transferred their loyalties a little bit. And there's something very interesting, I think, going on here, which I think of as a sort of progressive paradox, Anne, which is that if you are somebody in America who thinks that 
the American electorate might be a little bit sexist and might be a little bit racist, mm. which tends to be a view that's more widely shared on the left, you would think that it would be much better to run a white man as president, right? But in fact, what seems to be happening is that the people whose candidacy Joe Biden's sort of most defense, you know, he's this elderly white guy, very experienced, has a record that is full of things that uh, democratic activists find objectionable. You know, they are the ones who dislike him most of all. So there's, there's a really interesting thing going on there. We haven't had a lot of concrete policy proposals. Elizabeth Warren's a bit of an outlier in putting out some answers as she sees it to the really big questions facing America. But given that Donald Trump ran on very little policy, and lots of media and lots of presence and noise over Hillary Clinton, who was a bit of a wonk, is this such a good idea? Well, I agree with you. My read on the 2016 result was that policy was rather overrated. That said, that is the route Elizabeth Warren is going, and she's getting quite a lot of credit for it in the primary. And so the wonk in me is, is sort of gladdened by that. Um, also, Andrew Yang has a very, very policy-heavy platform, hundreds of pledges on his website. Ah, yes. Now, Andrew Yang, you've been in touch with him. What did you find? Yes, I interviewed him down the line from his campaign headquarters in New York. He has, as we've already said, a lot of policies, but he's best known for just one a proposal for a universal basic income of $1,000 every month for every adult in America. So I wanted to know why he's running on such an ambitious promise and also how he'd pay for it. The U.S. is the only advanced economy that does not have a value-added tax at present. And Amazon, one of our biggest companies, literally paid zero in federal taxes in 2018. So if you were to have even a mild value-added tax in the U.S. with our massive economy of $20 trillion plus, it would generate over $800 billion in new revenue, which could fund a dividend of $1,000 a month when combined with savings from existing programs, economic growth from putting buying power into Americans' hands, lower direct costs on things like incarceration and uh, homelessness services, and value gains from having a stronger, healthier, better educated population. Why do you think it's a better idea to make this benefit a universal one at a lower level than to make it more targeted where, you know, you might say, okay, we're going to, instead of making it $1,000 a month for everybody, we're going to make it $3,000 a month for a much smaller group of people who we consider particularly need help. Why not target it more? Well, part of it is the simplicity and the appeal. But if you look Throughout America, you find that there's one state that's had a dividend for the last 40 years where everyone gets between one and $2,000 a year, no questions asked. Uh, that state is Alaska. They're funding it through a petroleum dividend. That dividend is immensely popular in a deep red conservative state where a majority of Alaskans said they would accept higher taxes uh, to fund the dividend, and they don't like taxes at all. Um, so because it's universal and it seems fair to everyone, it can become politically uh, popular and even bulletproof in a way that more complicated plans might struggle. That's true, particularly when you look at America's existing network of welfare programs. So it's almost as much a political calculation as it is a, you know, what would the ideal policy be here if we were kind of starting from scratch? Those who oppose UBI seem to have sort of contradictory views. Either it's too radical, you know, you're giving people free money for not working and that undermines a core American value, or that it's not radical enough and, that, you know, $1,000 a month isn't very much. Uh, and, and so what are you going to do about that? You know, I, I think that's very perceptive. I mean, the, the data very clearly shows that it makes people 
better nourished, healthier, children's graduation rates go up, stress levels improve, domestic violence goes down. Uh, you'd create millions of new jobs in the consumer economy right in people's towns and main streets where you need them. Um, oftentimes, people fail to think about the second order and cumulative effects of everyone having an additional $12,000 a year. Uh, it solves a lot of problems. UBI, ne- nevertheless, is just one of your policies that, that you're interested in, albeit the one you're best known for, Andrew. Having you know, looked through your list of proposals, I want you to rank the following in order of importance and, and try and explain to me kind of briefly why. Because one of the things about governing is that you generally have to choose priorities, right? You can't do 100 do things. Do it all. You, yes, you, agreed. Right. So number one, automation uh, jobs. Number two, America's voting system. Three, education in America. Four, climate change. And I'm going to sneak in an an extra one, a bonus one, um, criminal justice reform. Automation and climate change are dual existential threats that are unfolding simultaneously. Um, And one of the reasons why I focus on automation and jobs is that they're very much linked. Where right now, if the vast majority of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, it's very hard to galvanize energy around climate change because many Americans think that it's going to be taking money out of their pockets or threaten their jobs. So if you get the boot off of people's throats through a dividend of $1,000 a month, then people will be much more open to addressing climate change in meaningful ways because they're not concerned about their uh, day-to-day living as much. and They think that their children's future is secure. And how about those other things, the voting system in America, education reform, criminal justice reform? I mean, they're all such important issues. Uh, I would put the voting system next because we're never going to actually make progress in this country if America feels like our government is held captive by corporate interests. Uh, And so one change I would make is I would put 100 democracy dollars in the hands of every American adult. And by the math, $100 in the hands of every American adult would wash out the lobbyist money by a factor of six to one. And one reason why I put that so high is that if you have a democracy that works for us, then you would end up strengthening our education systems and our criminal justice systems. Andrew, one last question on the Democratic primary. You know, is there a sense of kind of responsibility among Democratic rivals to to the party and to you know the importance of, of trying to beat Donald Trump and not beat each other up? I do think in a field this large, you know, that there's going to be an ongoing tension, but I'm very confident that the candidate who emerges will be in great position to beat Donald Trump. And in many ways, the Democratic crucible needs to play that role more effectively, because in the past, when we have rubber stamped a candidate in the name of electability, uh, we might have gotten it wrong. So this time we're going to see who's electable based upon the most pure criteria, which is how many Americans get behind that person and, and their vision for the country. The first real test of whether the candidates can avoid mudslinging will be this first round of televised debates. They'll go at it in batches of 10 on consecutive nights. The second batch, debating on June the 27th, has been labelled the death draw, with four of the five frontrunners sharing the stage. Three of them, former Vice President Joe Biden and Senators Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris, have plenty of Washington experience to draw on, But the fourth has been something of a surprise. I am uh, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. It's a city in the industrial American Midwest. I'm a candidate for president in the Democratic Party. Uh, I'm a veteran of the Afghanistan War, and I'm married with uh, two dogs. 
That's Pete Buttigieg. If elected, he'd be both the youngest and the first openly gay president. Glossy magazines and TV networks have clamoured to profile him, but I wanted to get a sense of the politician beneath the media sensation. After that stint in Afghanistan as a naval reservist, would he intervene in the kinds of conflict he himself volunteered to serve in? And among a large crowd on next week's debate stage, all calling for radical change, how will he differentiate himself? Well, I'll be the only candidate on that stage, I think, whose understanding of the presidency was shaped by having been sent to war on the orders of a president. Uh, I'll be uh, the only person up there who is governing as we speak uh, in a middle uh, Midwestern American city uh, and has that on the ground experience of local government at a time when we would be well served to start making Washington look a little more like our best run cities and towns rather than the other way around. There are far too many people where I live who voted for this president, not because they were under any illusions about his character, but because they were so disillusioned with our politics and with our economy that they effectively voted to burn the house down, voting for somebody they didn't even like in order to send a message. If we're not responsive to that, if we look like we are serving up more of the same from Washington, uh, then I fear that paradoxically, that effort to play it safe is how Democrats could lose and this president could cruise to a second term. And when you say more of the same, just to be clear, are you saying that perhaps the most prominent candidate on the establishment side, Joe Biden, would be more of the same? You know, with with 20 competitors, I try not to think too much about the others and and focus on our own message. But I do think that I'm uniquely able to present something that is the total opposite of the current president. And, uh, you know, Americans tend to vote for the opposite of whatever we've just had. It's a strong pattern in presidential election history. It's how you get somebody like Reagan after Carter. It's how you get somebody like Obama after Bush. And I would argue it doesn't get more different than the current U.S. president to have somebody from a new generation uh, living in a middle class neighborhood rooted in middle America, uh, confronting issues on the ground at a level of government when, where there's no such thing as alternative facts, uh, and one who uh, served the country when it was his turn. Let's move on to Donald Trump and the real fight ahead. You said he deserves impeachment. That's not quite the same as saying that you really think he should be impeached, or that you would actually move to impeach him, would you? Well, I do think that Congress ought to open impeachment proceedings because, uh, you know, what has come to them is, is effectively a referral uh, to them as, as the body of last resort that can deal with the things that have surfaced in these investigations. But the only part that I have control over is the part that involves beating him in an election. And I also think there's a lot of virtue to that in terms of sending a message about where this country's values really lie. And if the, uh, if the defeat is big enough and has enough coattails in the Congress, It might be the only thing possible uh, that would uh, actually reunite uh, a lot of Senate and congressional Republicans with their consciences since they have uh, been riding this tiger. And are you saying that Congress should be focusing more or less on this? Or might the question of whether you should be trying to impeach Donald Trump block out the light for more urgent matters? I'm going to leave that to Congress. I think as a country, we're capable of doing many things at once. The biggest problem we have is when our attention gets monopolized by the outrage of the day. 
it should be possible to maintain uh, the rule of law in this country and also to advance good policies. But good policies aren't getting any far, very far right now anyway because the uh, deep cynicism of the Republican Senate majority is stopping even widely popular initiatives like H.R. 1, the anti-corruption pro-democracy bill that came out of the House, uh, not to mention any kind of meaningful action on any issue from, from gun reform to immigration. It's very difficult right now. Uh, but the best thing I can do to be part of the solution is to work to defeat and replace this president. Is there anything that Democrats could learn from the Trump years that make it different from running this race in the past? Yes, there are a lot of lessons to be learned. First of all, you got to ask, how does a figure like this even get within cheating distance of the Oval Office? And it simply doesn't happen unless there are deep problems in our politics and in our economy. Uh, You know, people where I live in the industrial Midwest are furious at a system that they believe has let them down. And they're not wrong to see the rising tide lifting uh, a few boats, but most people uh, being stuck. You start the clock in the 70s and you look at the incredible productivity and economic growth of our country. And then you look at 90% of families seeing their incomes barely budge. And uh, it's clear that people are angry, which is made them susceptible to the message, full as it was of racism and paranoia and xenophobia, uh, the message of this president. Now, this president's not doing anything to make it better, but the point is he is exploiting the kinds of weaknesses that have emerged in our country. And, uh, you know, a a happy, secure, forward-looking, strong, prosperous person doesn't become a bully. The same is true of countries. A happy, uh, secure, prosperous country doesn't elect somebody like this. So we need to look at not only the the need to defeat this president, but the need to wrangle with the circumstances that, that made this presidency even possible. Otherwise, we could face something similar or, though it's hard to picture, something even worse at the next turn of the wheel. You're in Charleston for the Black Economic Alliance Forum, and you've acknowledged that you've struggled to demonstrate commitment to African-American voters in some ways. What is it that you think they need to hear from you? You know, there have been so many promises made to the black community by Republican and by Democratic politicians that if you arrive new on the scene, as I am, or not yourself from a community of color, uh, you have a lot of work to do to establish that trust. And that's why we're making sure we take this opportunity to communicate our agenda uh, that is very specific and very ambitious. You've talked about something akin to the Marshall Plan called the Douglas Plan for Black America. Broadly speaking, what would we see if that was put into action that we don't see happening in policy at the moment? It starts with the recognition that simply replacing a racist policy with a neutral one is not going to be enough because the racial wealth gap and other racial inequalities in our country happen because of uh, a systematic discrimination over decades and even centuries that has compounded through American history. And that means it's going to take intentional effort with real resources behind it to make a difference. And this is true across different sectors of American life. Not only do we need to make sure we have a more just uh, criminal justice system that Uh, moves on from mass incarceration uh, and the racial inequities that are in it. But also, we can't reduce the black experience in America to encounters with criminal justice. We also need to be talking about black entrepreneurship and what the federal government could be doing to co-invest and to make sure that uh, more purchasing and business done with the federal government is done with uh, enterprises owned by uh, minority and and women owners. Uh, We need to make sure that in areas of home ownership, education, and health, we are confronting the specific, quantifiable, and massive costs of racism. You've said that you want to see the prison population fall by half. That's quite a major intervention into the penal system, isn't it? 
It is, but we know that a major intervention is going to be required for America to prosper. Look, we are the most incarcerated nation in the developed world, and there is no correlation between mass incarceration and safety. Uh, furthermore, we see deep racial inequalities in sentencing in the rate at which people uh, are being incarcerated, especially who are black and, and other people of color. And we also know that a lot of this relates to nonviolent offenses like possession, where the incarceration is now doing more harm to society society as well as to the individual doing more harm than the original offense did. Uh, that's why we need to unwind this mass incarceration. And while it's a good sign that in the midst of the opioid crisis, the American people have finally begun to treat addiction more as a medical issue uh, than a personal failing to be criminalized, the question has to be asked, where was this enlightened attitude about drug policy during the crack epidemic or other incredibly racially unequal moments in the drug war? And it's why a lot of our work to reform drug policy has but to be retroactive. But a lot of these things happened under Democrats, didn't they? Absolutely, yeah. And uh, a lot of them happened before my political adulthood. But there's no time like the present to make things better and to do things differently. And if we don't do that, then we really will, I think, be held to account as a party that is already increasingly viewed by many black activists and voters as one that has taken them for granted. Let's turn to foreign policy, if we could. Since the speech that you gave on your priorities here... We've had the attacks on the tankers in the Gulf of Oman. So do you share the view of the US and the UK governments that Iran's Revolutionary Guard is behind the attacks? What would your response be to that as president? Well, more information is still coming in. It's certainly not inconsistent with uh, malign activities by the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, then again, there, there's more information that uh, I think we, we need to have to understand uh, some of the murkier aspects of what happened. But we need to move beyond this particular incident to ask about the course that we're on. When the president decided to withdraw America from the Iran nuclear deal, it has set off a, a chain reaction that is destabilizing in the reason, region. You couple that with the fact that this president, even though he has pretended that he was against the Iraq war all along, has installed one of the prime architects of that war in the White House as his national security advisor. And we have to ask the question of whether there is a march to war underway in the White House that the president himself may not even be able to control. This is a matter of extreme concern, knowing how hard it is to get out of wars once we're in them. And I say this as but somebody But even before who, that, before this threatened withdrawal from the Iran deal, this kind of activity was known to be occurring. So I think people will want to know, ultimately, are you always going to be looking to blame the administration or are you prepared to call out a power that you think is behaving reprehensibly? Well, we should never hesitate to speak to reprehensible behavior, and that includes reprehensible behavior of different kinds that's taking place on both sides of the Gulf. Uh, but it's also the case that the allocation of blame is not America's primary security responsibility. Uh, it is stabilization and the prevention of war. And that will be my focus as somebody who believed five years ago when I was in uniform leaving Afghanistan that I was one of the very last troops turning out the lights and notices that we are still there and perhaps, I'm afraid, not that far away from learning of the first American casualty of this conflict who was actually born after 9-11. We've got to have a way to put an end to endless war and the foundations of our security strategy for the Middle East and across the world have to reflect a higher bar for what it would take for us to use or threaten to use American military force. So no more wars of liberal intervention on your watch if you were to be elected. Is that right? 
We should use force when uh, core American interests are at stake and when there is no alternative. Now, I also believe that... Was there an alternative in Afghanistan where you served? I believe that uh, we had to act in Afghanistan. I believe the the problem, uh, the biggest problem that has emerged is a kind of drift where it was not clear what mission objectives were. You see, my confusion about this is that you've clearly taken the view, as many have within the Democratic Party these days, that Iraq was a mistake. The Batu intervention that you describe would be very high. In in fact, it would be higher for the war in Afghanistan, which you say was justified. So are you really saying that there would have to be an outright attack on America as a landmass before you would be prepared to take the country to war? There could Look, it could also be in response to a threat of such an attack or an attack on one of our treaty allies or in the framework of a legitimate international coalition, a lawful action in order to prevent atrocities. But the legitimacy of these things matters. Uh, the uh, certainty that uh, we have ruled out alternatives matters. And as we move forward, we need to make sure we have an American foreign policy that is consistent with our values. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why the Iraq war was such a disaster. As I opposed it uh, at the time. And uh, I'm very concerned that uh, we now see some of the architects of that very conflict seemingly uh, driving American policy once again in the Middle East. Let's look at Russia. There have been various hairpin turns in policy and outlook there from the US. President Obama had a reset. Would you agree it didn't get very far? Well, obviously, our relations with Russia are not optimal, uh, and we need to be concerned both with uh, their activities in the region that are in many cases destabilizing and with things like the extremely aggressive intervention in uh, in American politics. And uh, we're going to have to have a deterrence model that arrays economic, diplomatic, uh, information, and cyber tools to ensure that there is a sufficiently high cost to such an intervention in the future, that it is no longer considered part of the Russian foreign policy toolkit. And on China, how do you perceive the challenge from China? And how would your policy differ from the president's? Well, when it comes to China, the president doesn't even have a policy. There's a sort of approach which consists of poking them in the eye with tariffs uh, that seem to be as destructive to the American economy as as to the Chinese. Uh, And these tariffs are not going to change China's fundamental economic and political model. What we see in China is a a kind of techno-authoritarianism that is on the rise. And that, I'm afraid, is being presented as a credible alternative to the American model as we look uh, more chaotic and susceptible because of what's happening in our politics right now. It's why the better part of how we deal with China will have to be to invest in our our own competitiveness and stability, but also to pursue a uh, political framework where across the world, human rights matter, democracy matters, climate change and your policy on them matters, because I think we would have China more on the back foot if climate diplomacy were significant. Uh, And we have to make sure that we're not falling behind the kinds of investments they're making in things like artificial intelligence. All of these need to add up into a strategy that contemplates the true nature of power dynamics and economic dynamics across the world in the 21st century. But right, right now, we have a president who seems to have reduced the entire China relationship to the export-import balance on dishwashers. And I think we have to wrap, but I can't leave without asking you. You're a fan of parks and recreation, as in the television comedy, not the day job. <laughs> well, since it's about local government in Indiana, it hits a little close to home, but it's definitely got the most accurate depictions of uh, public and community meetings that I've seen on television. Of course, the characters do struggle a bit when they get to Washington because they find it <laughs> 
too tough and a bit dishonest. Don't you worry that might happen to you. Well, it's about the encounter with uh, with utter cynicism that that uh, often happens in Washington. And uh, I'm no stranger to the place, even though I don't uh, work or live there. Uh, but I think that Americans need to see candidates and leaders who are committed to something deeper than the day-to-day uh, ups and downs and, and this kind of grotesque show that the president has created in Washington. It's for precisely that reason that I think exporting the problem-solving mentality of city leaders who are compelled to actually deal with the issues in front of us. We don't get to deal with a budget crisis by printing more currency. We have to actually solve the problems. And I think we could use more of that in Washington right now. And are you a Ron, as in the red meat-loving libertarian, or a Leslie, the rather gentle, herbivorous kind of progressive? (laughs) Well, uh, my taste in in steak and whiskey is definitely more aligned with with Ron's, but uh, I think everybody needs to have a little bit of Leslie in them if, uh, if you can summon the hope needed to run for office in the first place. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, thank you very much. Thanks. Take care. Thanks very much. So back in the studio, we wanted to mull over where all this leaves the donkey derby. John, Mayor Pete's Leslie-like hope that we heard there, is it justified? And what do you make of him? Well, I think he's a very eloquent candidate, very thoughtful. I think his CV, which he's clearly spent some time thinking about, is very impressive. If you told me a few years ago that one of the contenders to take on President Trump would be the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, I would have asked you to go and get your head checked, Dan. But, you know, maybe he might be the one that that Democrats are looking for. He's certainly generating a lot of excitement among um, democratic activists at the moment. Quite a lot of the people who a few months ago were very excited about Beto O'Rourke are now very excited about Mayor Pete. And how do you think this will play out in the debates? We know that he doesn't debate Elizabeth Warren. It's just the way the draw has gone. We will hear first from a debate in which she is the star at the moment. What are we looking for? Well, I suppose the first thing is whether any candidate has what's now known in American politics as a Rick Perry moment after the governor of Texas who had pledged to abolish three government departments and on the stage in the Republican primary debate could only remember two of them. So will anybody have a moment like that that basically kills their candidacy? I mean, otherwise, it'll be a question of how can these candidates, they'll all be trying to get noticed and there are so many of them on stage. So how can the moderator avoid the whole thing descending into a a cacophony? And what do you think Donald Trump will be watching for? It seems obvious that he's going full steam ahead to get that second term. That's right, he is. He's already had his 2020 campaign launch. He's a man in search of an opponent. He really likes an opponent, somebody who he can give a nickname and then who he can sort of pillory at rallies. It was noticeable that at his campaign event in Orlando a few days ago, he was still talking about Hillary Clinton. The crowd was still chanting, lock her up. It was like 2016 had never ended. I think he'd quite like to be able to identify a Democratic opponent who he can start pillorying now. Let's see who makes it through into the final boxing ring. John Prideau, thank you very much. Thanks. And we'll be speaking to more of the presidential hopefuls as the race continues. As ever, we want to know what you think. Which runners and riders for the Democratic Party get your bet? And can any of them compete against President Trump? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And to follow our weekly analysis of the race as it unfolds in print and online, subscribe, go to economist.com slash radio offer, 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams. 
tailgating pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.